trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello again, Patriots. This is Mason President Gregory Washington here with another Access to Excellence podcast, where we discuss the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. This month marks the one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States that forced most universities to move away from their traditional operating frameworks and dramatically change the lives of most Americans. To mark this milestone, I'm hosting a two-part discussion this month to examine where we stand with the pandemic and where we are headed. Today's guest is Amira Roes, a professor of global health and epidemiology in the Mason College of Health and Human Services, who is here to talk about what we know about the virus, what is preventing us from knowing more, vaccine hesitancy, and how lessons learned will apply to future pandemics. Dr. Roes has a PhD in global disease epidemiology and control from Johns Hopkins University. She was an epidemic intelligence service officer at the CDC. You're going to have to explain to me what that is. She's been a consultant for the United States Agency on International Development and the World Bank. She is an expert on the transmission of zoonotic infectious diseases globally. So part two of this conversation, which will be coming soon, will feature Saskia Popescu. She is a term assistant professor in the biodefense program within Mason's Shar School of Policy and Government, and she's conducting work on infection protection as a public health policy. But we're going to begin today with Dr. Roes. Dr. Roes, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Really, it's still a difficult time, but it's actually a better time, right? There's much more hope. We can see the possibility of this thing getting better around the corner. It's interesting, uh, but as we were preparing for this engagement with you, uh, new cases per day was about 64,000. And it was about a week ago. We were putting this stuff together. Today, the seven-day average is now down to 57,485. So the number is coming down. 524,000 deaths, way too many. But the fact that we're coming down from a high of 259,000 new cases on average per day just two months ago is, to me, a bright light at the end of the tunnel. I recently read an article in Scientific American that described how COVID-19 slipped past disease detectives. And I want to get back to this CDC intelligence officer bit that you had earlier. It said that scientists tasked with identifying pandemic microbes were stretched too thin and didn't have enough resources. I'm just curious to this intelligence part of your previous job, and I'm just curious to your take on why COVID-19 was not identified sooner. So let's start with uh, what is an epidemic intelligence service officer, and those are often called disease detectives. We work for the CDC to investigate outbreaks and do a lot of what you all have been hearing about, contact tracing, chasing down sources of infection. When I was at the CDC, I was really lucky to be working with a group that was 
focused on zoonotic diseases and pox viruses. And so we had what now was really the luxury of doing a lot of sequencing over 10 years ago. Uh, and so that is a very important thing, and we're learning now about how important sequencing is because when you sequence a pathogen, a virus, you end up learning a lot about where it maybe came from, where the transmission came from. And that feeds into sort of the intelligence part because then you can really understand transmission. And if you can understand the transmission or the source of an outbreak, then you can do something about it. You can prevent future outbreaks. What do we know about COVID-19 from this perspective of how it operates and mutates and changes relative to other viruses of its type? There's a lot of information going around, and some say that this one just operates differently. It seems to mutate and get stronger and not weaker. It's changing itself in ways in which don't seem to be, for lack of a better way of putting this, normal for viruses of this type. What is your feedback? on these things. So all microbes mutate over time. As they evolve, there are some changes that occur. When we often look at zoonotic pathogens or zoonotic viruses, we do look for changes that happen in the sequence. And those give us clues about what might be coming on the horizon. Could this become more transmissible, less transmissible, more virulent, less virulent? So all of that information ends up being really critical to help us prepare. And it also helps us understand how the virus is spreading because then we're able to track changes from one strain to another. In the case of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes the COVID-19 disease, it is mutating at basically a rate that you would expect from coronaviruses. We know that most viruses that affect humans that cause disease, they do mutate at a fairly rapid rate compared to other microbes or other organisms. So it's really important to understand these changes and to be aware of what's happening to the virus on a genome level and what's happening to the epidemiology of the disease. One thing that we've been aware of for a long time, those of us who have been studying zoonotic diseases, is that the changes can be really important for how they affect humans. And so it's really important that we have systems in place to track viruses, to track changes. And unfortunately, what we've seen happen here in the U.S. is that we've really neglected funding of science and building public health surveillance and infrastructure. And what that means is that we really didn't have our acts together. We didn't have the laboratories up and running, the personnel trained to use the state-of-the-art technologies that we've had access to in theory for the last 20 years. In the meantime, a lot of our counterparts in high-income countries, especially in Western Europe and in parts of Asia, have managed to not only build the system, but to keep it functioning. And they managed to train a fair number of scientists, graduate students, and others in some of these more advanced techniques to really sequence and track viruses and other pathogens as they evolve. Now, right now, we've learned that there are maybe five strains that we're concerned about because it seems that this virus has mutated in a way that makes it more transmissible, and oftentimes we do expect changes like that. We also expect to see a virus mutate so that it's less virulent or causes less severe disease. That's, in a way, in the benefit of a lot of viruses, right? They want to stick around, right? They don't want to kill you. They just want you to 
be a good host to them. And so it has been surprising when we've seen these new reports of more virulent strains, although it's important to keep in mind that a lot of these are just reports. They're not peer-reviewed. So there's still a lot that we don't know. And recognizing it's only been a year since this pandemic was declared an emergency of international concern. So there's still quite a bit to learn. We're all really expecting to see that the virus will continue to mutate. And if it goes the way of a lot of other viruses, the hope is that it will become less virulent. A popular hypothesis is it will become like a common cold. That would be great. But we do know that the UK strain is indeed more contagious, right? Which, because of that, has a potential to make it more deadly. If it's more contagious, it can affect more people. So what do we know about this South African strain? Because just today I read an article that said that our vaccines are not as good as we once thought against the South African strain. What do we know about it? With the UK strain, the South Africa strain, and the Brazil strain, as well as the New York strain, and the strain that we're seeing on the West Coast, we're seeing more transmissible variants emerge. And in the case of the South Africa strain, one of the concerns is it appears that maybe it is more virulent, maybe it does evade antibody therapies. And this is problematic because monoclonal antibody therapies and other antibody therapies are one of our most promising treatments when it comes to treating severe COVID-19 disease. And so these reports that suggest that it's likely that we have one or two strains that are more virulent are problematic because they could really set us back. Now, the good news is that the vaccines do offer a very high level of protection against severe COVID-19 disease, and that's really important here. Think of it this way. If you were to get the vaccine and then you're exposed to the South Africa variant, yes, you may become infected, but it would be more like a common cold, a minor cold rather than a severe COVID-19 disease that would have you in the hospital and for individuals who are immune compromised could lead to death. So that's one way to think about it. If you can get a vaccine, get a vaccine because the way vaccines work is that they will confer some level of immunity or some level of protection against other strains of the COVID-19 virus. I don't want to get too political with you in this, but I got to go there. Right now, it looks like upwards of 16 states are relaxing or, in a number of cases, totally removing all mask mandates. Texas was the first. I think Mississippi might have been the latest. Talk about that and give me your ideas on what you think that's going to lead to. So it's a little too early to lift these mandates. I think that has been the consensus among people who are working in public health and in response. The reason it's still too early is because we still have a small percentage of our population who are vaccinated. If you look at who is vaccinated right now, it's less than 15% of adults. We're not even talking about young adult teenagers. There's no vaccine for children under the age of 16. So the majority of our population is not yet vaccinated, which is why it's too early to lift a lot of these restrictions or a lot of these mandates. We need everyone to have the mentality that if I wear my mask and I social distance, I am protecting myself and I am protecting you. I'm protecting my neighbors, my children, my family, my friends. By seeing a few states ease up on the restrictions, I'm afraid that it really is sending the wrong message, especially right now when we're so 
close to really uh, making remarkable progress here. I'm really optimistic that if we continue on the path of wearing masks and social distancing, that we will have a fighting chance at avoiding what happened in the UK. Now, as you mentioned, we've seen a pretty significant decrease in the number of daily cases in the US. As we are moving into warmer weather, that was going to happen. But the vaccine is going to allow us to have a more drastic and permanent decrease in the cases if we allow ourselves a chance to get this vaccine out to a large number of our population. The other thing to consider is we have these strains, these more transmissible strains circulating in the U.S. And that can mean maybe going back in our progress. We've seen a number of states are actually seeing a slight uptick in the number of cases, the seven-day rolling average. We've seen that slowly increase in some states. And it's stagnating in other states. Now, the concern here is that we have these more transmissible strains that are circulating and they're getting comfortable. If we hit a point where 50% of new cases are from the more transmissible strains, we might be in some real trouble. And there is a fear that we may be undoing the remarkable progress that we've done. And so this is a reason to really continue to be vigilant and to support each other and to remind each other why we have to wear masks and why we have to social distance. So yes, there's you know a lot of hope and we have been making progress, but we are still on very precarious grounds here. And it is too early to lift a lot of these uh, restrictions. So I am concerned. I think a lot of individuals are concerned. We have a vaccine and this has the potential of really changing the trajectory of this pandemic. But if we don't give the vaccines a chance to be distributed and used, we're going to be facing more outbreaks. And unfortunately, some of the states have decided to go against the science in this regards. Let me take the other side of this, because people are tired. They have been cooped up. I literally know people who have not been out of the house. They might have been out once or twice. That's over a period of a month. That's tough. We're talking upwards of a year. So I can see why people just want to get the thing over with. They just jump on it. You know, they want to go to their favorite restaurant. They want to go see their family members, right? It's interesting. I came here in part to be closer to family. I've been on the West Coast for the last nine years or so. And my family, they're primarily here on the East Coast, a number of them in North Carolina and in Virginia. This was a time for me to spend more time with my extended family while working. I haven't seen them. <laughs> you, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Took the job. I've been, uh, you know, I've seen them on Zoom. Again, this is the longest period of time since birth that I've been without seeing my parents, uh, you know, my, my wife's family. We haven't seen anybody. So I get it. I know that people are, I, I, I can't even explain it because it's hard for me to explain myself. It, it's almost akin to being incarcerated with all the cable television you can watch, right? right? Um, the Zoom meetings you can have. All the Zoom you can have while locked up and cooped up. Thank God for Zoom. It has been a help. It's interesting, but the technology 
has progressed just enough where we can actually have Zoom calls and large Zoom meetings and thereby allow a good bit of our life to continue. You think about it, this happens five years earlier. We would not have had the technology available to conduct large classes. We would not have had that. You had the ability to do some of this, but people forget how fast the technology has actually evolved over the few years. But still, I get it. So talk to me about this. People are going to come together. They, they can't help it. We're looking at this 259,000 new cases per day number that happened two months ago. That was because people came together at Thanksgiving and at Christmas. They just couldn't resist, even if it meant death. They're going to come together. So here's my question for you. Ready? I'm ready. <laughs> What's the worst case scenario? We know we got these variants. They're floating around here and we got vaccines. What's the worst case? So the worst case scenario is that people don't get vaccinated and they don't get vaccinated. They go from place to place. They visit people and they let this virus spread. And not only do they let the virus spread, they let the more virulent and the more transmissible strains spread. And if that's the case, we are going to find ourselves doing what the UK did, which is have movement restrictions that meant that you couldn't move between cities. And if you did move between cities, you would face the these very large fines. None of us want to be in that situation. And the reason the UK ended up doing this was because their society was really, in a way, close to collapsing, right? So many people were infected and were sick, and they were having very large numbers of hospitalized individuals. And so we have an opportunity to avoid all of that by getting vaccinated and by wearing masks and social distancing. This is a remarkable opportunity. Otherwise, we're going to see what we saw two months ago. Those high daily case numbers occur again. And next winter, we might be faced with having to go back indoors and no one will be working or going to school. None of us want to do this and none of us have to face that if we just hang on a little bit longer, get those vaccines, encourage each other to social distance and wear the masks. We know that that is a wonderful formula to really avoid those high spikes in cases and those high levels of hospitalizations. What you are saying is absolutely correct. Social distancing, wearing masks, that's actually been the most effective strategy for keeping the disease from propagating. The community in America is telling us that there is a segment of our population that is not going to do that. They may do it for a period of time, but when the pressures of coming together, be it the summer, be it the holidays, they're going to do it. It's just going to happen, and there's just no way around that. Now that the vaccines are out, we literally had folk in Idaho burning their mask. They had a big mask burning party. Here's my worst case fear. You tell me if you think this is accurate or not. That just as you state, we're going to have people who are going to come out. They're going to gather. They're going to come together. You'll see some of these other more transmissible, more virulent variants spread. And people won't have time to get the vaccine because the transmission of the virus will happen at a rate faster than the execution of the vaccinations. And when you're having those two things happen and the transmission rate is much faster than a vaccination rate, you, you know, you wind up with people getting the disease before they can get vaccinated. And then, so your vaccination effort collapses, right? Or reaches a plateau where you got infections in hospitals 
hospitalizations and the like. So there's no sense in vaccinating those people there. And then everybody else has either already been vaccinated or one of these other variants becomes resistant. And then you start the whole process all over again, because even people who have been vaccinated then start getting infected by this new variant that resists the vaccine. It's like you're in this do loop that Mm -hmm. you can never get out of. Is that possible? Oh, absolutely. And this is one of the things we've been banging our heads against the wall on. Get the vaccines out very quickly, as quickly as we can. We need vaccines in arms. And if we don't do it quickly enough, and if we don't make sure that everyone who wants to get vaccinated gets vaccinated, we are going to face outbreak after outbreak. And there will be a real risk that will have high sustained transmission rates in many parts of the country due to these more transmissible strains. And so all of us working in this field are really troubled by how slow some of the vaccination programs have been. And it's very clear that if we don't get this done in the absence of a unified national approach to mitigation strategies and movement restrictions, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. We're basically going to be stuck waiting for the vaccine to mutate as it wants with very little effects of our behavior on the evolution of the pandemic. And that's not a place where any of us want to be. But unfortunately, if you really do have half the population in the U.S. or more refusing to wear masks, refusing to social distance, and then on top of it having high levels of vaccine hesitancy, that is a likely scenario. We're going to face this in the future unless we do something drastic. And I think we have pockets in the U.S. where you are seeing high vaccination rates and you are seeing high mask wearing and social distancing rates. And hopefully in those populations, they'll be able to build a bit of a bubble around themselves and protect themselves and at least have very few severe cases of COVID while the rest of the country, you know, will end up facing what the virus has to offer. I'm going to go into hyperspace right here. So hang on and bear with me as I get through this. Recently, an MD by the name of Scott Gottlieb, he's Mm -hmm. on a number of the news talk shows. He's on the board of either Merck or Pfizer, one of these large healthcare companies. He actually began to question the actual origin of this virus. And the point that was being made was that there was some theory that was being propagated by the Chinese that the virus was actually being transmitted on food packaging. That's how the virus actually got into China to begin with. This came about because this idea that it was established in wet markets and that it propagated through wet markets and through this trade of different animals where it jumps from one animal to one animal to one animal to another and then winds up on someone's plate and then jumps into a human. And that was one that the World Health Organization investigated very thoroughly, this idea that maybe it could be food packaging. There is another theory that says there's been some folk experimenting with viruses, trying to determine how they work, maybe for germ warfare, that you had one of these high-level virology labs in Wuhan, right near the wet market where this thing is supposedly took off from. And the Chinese have been very, very hesitant to let the investigations take a look to see if that's a possibility. And when you look at the behavior of the virus, it looks like something that might have some artificial man-made 
made components in it that could lend to some of this behavior that you even alluded to earlier. What do you think about this? So it's important to look into what are zoonotic diseases and how do they typically spill over. A lot of infectious diseases have a zoonotic origin. And what typically happens is people who are coming into close contact with wildlife or with the environment get exposed. And then another individual gets exposed. And over time, there is some spillover, some infection that occurs. Oftentimes, it never leads to disease. But after, for example, you know, decades of exposure, um, some hunters will show evidence of immunity against many, many viruses, none of which cause them disease and none of which have ever caused disease in people. This kind of spillover happens often, especially in populations that are in very close contact with wildlife and with the environment. And so there is just a chance that over time, one of these spillover events will result in a pathogen that does cause disease popping up. And over time, there's a chance that mutations will occur in these various microbes that will mean that here is now a candidate for very efficient person-to-person transmission. So these things have been happening for hundreds of years. We're just getting very good at understanding more about spillover and we're getting much better at detecting new viruses and sequencing and categorizing. So it's important to keep this in mind. There's an estimate that something like 75% of the infectious diseases that we've faced in recent years have come from a zoonotic origin. So keep this in mind when you're trying to understand, well, what is the source of this virus, of SARS-CoV-2? There have been quite a few theories about whether this is a man-made or manipulated virus. And right now, the evidence doesn't really support that theory. There's been quite a bit of work on the viral sequence to understand how quickly do mutations occur, how quickly is SARS-CoV-2 related to other coronaviruses. And the evidence right now, what we've seen, seems to really suggest that this is just something that naturally occurred. It it spilled over and now it's a problem in human populations. It's likely that individuals who were hunting or fishing or in close contact with wild animals or animal products were the ones who were initially infected. And over time, they started to transmit that to other individuals. And various mutations occurred, which made this a more transmissible strain, something that can be efficiently transmitted from person to person. You know, there are other coronaviruses that we have been keeping an eye on. MERS coronavirus is one of them, the one that has uh, been implicated in the Middle East for a few hospital-based outbreaks, and camels may play a role there. But what MERS doesn't have is efficient person-to-person transmission, and it can occur. So we are keeping an eye on MERS coronaviruses as funding allows and as time allows. It's one of the other problems that we have with all of this coronavirus research because right now it is not efficiently transmitted from person to person, but we still have these outbreaks that seem to be linked to an exposure to camels. And then there's the question about, well, where are the camels getting it? Because the camel is sort of the intermediary host. It doesn't seem to be the animal where the virus is hiding out in 
and, and living in. It, might, it may be another animal. And so it's really complex to understand what are the likely candidates for efficient person-to-person transmission, i.e. the next pandemic strain. And we're still learning a lot and we're still behind in the science in this area. Let me add to this. You mentioned sequencing and, and that's an important tool in being able to understand how these viruses are migrating and how they're changing and how they're mutating. Talk to me about sequencing. First of all, explain what it is so that everybody in the audience knows. How does it provide knowledge we could use to fight the disease? So every microbe has a genetic sequence. Every organism has a genetic sequence. And with viruses, as they proliferate, as they have offspring, there's changes that occur, these mutations. They occur from generation to generation. Humans, we procreate every 25 years or so as a generation, and we see some slight mutations from generation to generation over hundreds of years. Well, a virus in a person will have thousands thousands of generations in a couple of days. The only way that we detect these mutations is by examining the sequence and comparing it to the generation before that. And so our technology is really good in that we can more efficiently sequence. We can do this much faster than ever before. And what we end up doing is saying, okay, this strain of the virus is related to this strain before that. The strain in patient A is similar to the strain in patient B, they were likely infected from the same source. Sequencing gives us the ability to understand how the virus changes over time and how it moves from person to person. And so what we often are looking for when we're sequencing is the source of an outbreak. We want to know where this person picked up the virus. And then we want to understand how many people were infected with that same strain because that gives us information and clues about the transmissibility of the virus. The other thing that we'd love to know is, are there differences in the severity of the disease by the strain? And this has implications for how we treat and how we prioritize which treatments we want to really put our resources towards. So if we know that strain X is more virulent, then we really want to work hard at making sure we have a treatment that treats that strain. If a strain is highly transmissible, then we may want to prioritize our public health response so that whenever we see this more transmissible strain pop up, we do really intense contact tracing very quickly. And in cases where we see that more transmissible strain, we're going to want to really slow down movement and impose movement restrictions, make wearing masks required, because that's going to be our way of really trying to stop the spread of that more transmissible virus. So that's what sequencing does and has the power to do. When we study other viral outbreaks, we're also looking at other clinically important mutations, mutations that may render a therapy, an antiviral, or some other therapy ineffective. Those are really key, and we do this for tuberculosis, for gonorrhea, for HIV. We're looking for mutations that render some of our treatments ineffective. And that's, in a way, what we need to be doing and what we've started to do in the U.S. for SARS-CoV-2. We want to understand which are the more transmissible strains, which Mm -hmm. are the strains that are evading the antibody therapies, which are the strains that maybe the vaccines won't be as effective against. So you know something that's amazing to me. We sit here 
we're not just the richest country in the world, but the richest country in the history of civilization, right? We're sitting here with this wealth and we're not doing a large amount of sequencing. This is exactly the kind of thing we should be doing, but we're not sequencing. <laughs> we're not right. doing that much. Why are we not doing a lot of that here? In Everybody should get sequenced, in my opinion, so that you actually have really good information when you get a positive, where that positive is actually coming from. We've never really prioritized sequencing microbes in this country. We have done a very poor job at building public health infrastructure and surveillance, and now we're seeing the consequences of that. I agree with you. Every time someone is positive, we should at least have that specimen stored so that we can go back and sequence. We should, at a minimum, have a protocol for which samples we'll sequence. Is it every 10% of samples? Is it a random selection of samples? Is it 10% of samples by each age group. We should have a robust strategic surveillance system that has a very rigorous sequencing component. Now, I think we have to learn from what's been happening in other high-income countries, and we really have to take a objective and sometimes harsh look at why we are where we are here. It is not a coincidence that in a lot of high-income countries where they have universal healthcare access or meaningful universal health care access, they're able to have more rigorous public health infrastructure and more robust sequencing capability. That is not a coincidence. We have in the U.S. really no meaningful universal health care access, which means that individuals stay out of the health care system. And if they do become sick, it's hit or miss where they're going to go because we don't have any kind yeah, of... We don't know where they are. Right. We have no record of them. This is not a plug for universal health care, but we got to do better than what we're doing in terms of even knowing where people are, right? Right. You get a pathogen like this and you have very little means to trace it, very little means to track it. There could be large number of people in homeless populations and others where this thing is spreading, right? And you find out when they end up at a hospital. To me, it makes it extraordinarily difficult. And if you don't have the ability to sequence, you taken another tool away from you in terms of tracking. We're trying to build a sequencing capability here on campus because my philosophy is we can either argue or shout at the darkness when we see it, or we can light a candle. Right. And that's why we start our own testing lab. That's why we gotten into the vaccination support game. That's why we're doing vaccine distribution ourselves on our own dime. It's because we see some of the problems that we're having as a society and we're saying, okay, we got to figure out ways to help. You know, as, as I start to wrap up here, we talked a little bit about what COVID-19 itself can look like down the road. You talk about it could be something like the flu or something like that over time. Talk to me about the next pandemic. These pandemics are coming with increasing frequency globally. We're seeing that happen. So talk to me a little bit about the next one. We've had many near misses. That's the other thing that I don't know if lots of individuals can appreciate that. There was the H1N1 outbreak in 2009. That was very close to being a pandemic, but we were lucky because, yes, the strain moved from person to person efficiently, but it wasn't as virulent as we had initially thought. There was SARS, the first 
SARS, that was a pandemic, and that really devastated the economy of parts of Asia and Canada. MERS coronavirus, that's also been very costly, in part because of which countries it's affected, higher income countries in the Gulf, and South Korea was impacted. So it is very clear that as we move forward in time, we are seeing more spillover events, and we're seeing more pandemic events, and we're seeing more costly pandemic events. And part of this is that as a whole, the income of many countries has improved and increased. So if you look at Ebola, Ebola spills over and causes pretty significant local outbreaks. And in 2015, we got a taste of what an Ebola pandemic could look like. And it's important to really think through how we should be prepared for these sorts of events. When I worked at the CDC, oftentimes we would go to some rural areas in the world where there were, you know, one flight a week would go to some area and there were no roads from some of these areas in the capital city. And we used to tell each other, this is in 2008 and 9, we're really lucky in a way as a globe that Ebola is right here and it isn't hitting the larger capital cities in parts of sub-Saharan Africa because if it ever got to a more populated area, a busier place with more travel between countries, we'd be in serious trouble. And then six years later, that's exactly, that's what, exactly happened. what happened. That's exactly what happened. That's right. What happened. And we were all really upset at the lack of preparedness that was really in place after decades of working on building relationships between countries and between scientists. If you don't sustain that kind of relationship and if you don't foster that and support it, you're in infrastructure to deal with the next pandemic is going to be that much weaker. You and know, it's, it's interesting. When you look at SARS and MERS and the like, it affected a, a number of Asian countries. And that might have led to how better prepared those countries were when COVID-19 hit. They seemed to be better prepared. They had plans in place. They executed those plans. The communities knew to wear a mask. They knew to distance themselves. People say, oh, well, that was Asian culture. Maybe not. Maybe it was the fact that they had experienced multiple pandemics in the past. And because of that, they had an operational playbook in play for how they're supposed to handle it. What's your thought on that? Yes, this is an important point. When the first SARS emerged, what happened globally is a lot of high-income countries did almost exactly what we're doing now in terms of throwing science resources towards SARS. And in the U.S., we did the same thing. We said, we're going to build an infrastructure to understand SARS. We're going to support researchers who want to work on SARS. And what ended up happening, not even two years after SARS went away, the funding for coronavirus research, especially SARS research, really dried up in the U.S. But you know what happened in Germany and in South Korea and in other countries in Asia was that they continued to fund coronavirus work. They continued to prioritize this. And you had researchers who've spent their careers studying coronaviruses, whereas in the U.S., we hardly had anyone. In 2015, I started to work on MERS coronavirus. And at that time, I could not find a group in the U.S. that had a 
long history of working on coronaviruses, but I was really fortunate that I partnered up with scientists in Germany who had only been working on coronaviruses since 2002. And we wrote these proposals together. We started doing work together on MERS coronavirus. We have a large grant supported by the National Science Foundation to understand MERS coronavirus epidemiology spillover and to really try to understand what causes it to become more transmissible and to become efficient at human-to-human transmission. Well then, while we're working on MERS coronavirus, COVID-19 hit and it is in a way tragic to see that we're going down that same road of we're throwing money at the problem. The good news is we've developed a couple of great vaccines, but what I see possibly happening again is that we are going to pull that funding away as soon as COVID-19 disappears. And this is really problematic because we know that there are going to be more coronavirus spillovers. And the reason we know this is for those of us who've been working on zoonotic diseases for over 50 years, our colleagues in the veterinary medical world and in the wildlife health world, they have been telling us, hey, you got to pay attention. When a coronavirus spills over and targets one of the species that we study, it can be devastating for that species. Human health needs to start paying attention to this. And we didn't. We're not paying attention to our colleagues. And I think this also highlights some problems that we have structurally in terms of how we do research, how we do interdisciplinary work, how we prioritize what should be funded and what shouldn't be funded, and then how we do our peer review process and who we choose to fund. In the U.S., researchers are constantly chasing what's fundable, at least in some of the traditional universities that are constantly seeking funds to keep the research afloat. That's problematic because if you're constantly chasing the funds, that means that you're not going to have an in-depth knowledge about specific areas, and we're seeing the consequence of that. I think we also have to consider that if this is our reality, we need to bolster our partnerships globally, not cut them down. We need a World Health Organization. We need to have U.S.-based academics, U.S.-based scientists working closely with academics and scientists throughout the world. If we didn't have robust coronavirus programs in parts of Europe, in parts of Asia, the wonderful progress that we made in coming up with the vaccines would have been five, ten years in the making. So this is another really critical area that we need to think about. How are we going to have more robust funding for science and for really preventing or at least better handling the next pandemic? No, I agree with you 100%. On that note, it's time to wrap things up here at Access to Excellence. I want to thank Amira Roes, Professor of Global Health and Epidemiology in Mason's College of Health and Human Services. Look for part two of my discussion coming soon with Saskia Popescu, a term assistant professor in the biodefense program with Mason's Shar School of Policy and Government. Thank you, President Washington. Thank you. I am Mason President Gregory Washington saying, until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.